previously on Who Killed Amy Maholovic, Part 1. Fifth grader Amy Maholovic went to Bay Village Middle School on Friday wearing green pants, a lavender and green sweatshirt, and carrying a denim and red backpack. Police found Amy's bike locked up at school, but they haven't found Amy. Well, we're doing this to show Amy that we're all hoping for and hoping that she gets returned home safely. And I know we're all sort of scared, you know, and that something like this could really happen in our community. This quiet, upscale community is totally unaccustomed to this type of trauma. The Mahalovic abduction is on the minds and lips of everyone in town. And authorities fear that with each day that passes, lessens the likelihood of her safe return. Amy's abductor has been described as a white male, 35 to 45 years old, approximately 5'8", and wearing glasses. I, in fact, would like to ask anybody in the Cleveland area to light a white candle for Amy each day. Um, I think it will help light her way home. If there are candles burning all over, she's got to come back. She's got to come back. It was anything but business as usual today at Bay Village Middle School. Shortly after leaving here last Friday, 10-year-old Amy Mahalovic was abducted. Whoever is responsible is out there. We know that they have a great interest in what's being covered in the media, and uh, we certainly don't want to do anything to tip them off as to uh, the course of direction of our investigation. A number of law enforcement officials, including the FBI, were here for tonight's memorial service. In addition to paying their respects, there was also the gruesome outside possibility that Amy's killer might be among those who came to pay their respects. Bay Village police and the FBI aren't thumbing their nose at any clues, including the remotest of possible leads. Right now, time is the enemy, as the abductor's trail grows colder by the day. There's uh, frustration because the uh, murder hasn't been found. There's a lot of anger over that, too. Amy's posters up all over town will eventually come down. So will the ribbons tied up for Amy that are now worn and torn. Hello and welcome to part two of the Who Killed Amy Mahalovic four-part series in honor of the 30-year mark of her case being unsolved. We hope that more attention will be given to this case, and in part two, I sit down with Mark Spetzel, who is the chief of the Bay Village Police Department and is the officer that actually spoke to Amy's class on the day that Amy disappeared. So he has a lot of insight and some new information to provide. So I'm going to hop right into my conversation with Chief Spetzel, and again, many thanks to him and the department for their openness and their uh, willingness to work with me. So thanks again, and let's hope we find some closure. <laughs> I'm good. How are you? What's that? Round three. Round three, 30 years. Good uh, round number. How you been? Good. How are you? Not too bad. I know where to go. Thanks. You dressed down today. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. A little more casual today. What's that? A little more casual today. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Mind if I take a minute to set up? No, please go ahead. Actually, I gotta, I gotta check something. Sounds awesome. Okay. We're good? All right. All right. Yeah. All right. Hey, how are you? <clears throat> Doing well, thank you. Go ahead and introduce yourself. <laughs> Mark Spetzel, police chief with the city of Bay Village. 
And Chief Spetzel. It's 30 years now. It'll be 30 years and, uh, yeah, a couple weeks here. A couple weeks. Yep. What's your connection to the case again? Well, I, I've, got a, I've got an extensive collection. So I've been with the department almost 34 years. So I was here and a young, relatively young officer at the time that this uh, crime occurred. And uh, as a patrol officer on October 27, 1989, I had actually uh, spoken to a class at the middle school and uh, later learned that uh, Amy Mahalik was in that class the same day that she was later abducted. So my connection goes back to the very beginning. And then um, at some point after, um, you know, we're just going to fast forward here. Uh, I became a detective lieutenant, was put in charge of the detective bureau, and then it became case fall, fell under my purview. And so for the next 15 years or so, I was the main investigator along with uh, past investigators in the FBI on the case. So, and now uh, as police chief, I oversee all that and um, as, as you and I have discussed in the past, a little frustrating because you can't work the case like you'd like to now as a police chief because you have other responsibilities. So I've been there since day one, basically. Yeah, literally. Literally, yeah. Literally since day one. Yep. Now, as far as the, um, the 15 years that you spent working mm-hmm. as a lead detective on the case, what was your daily routine like when you were, and what were those years? Uh, it was from 1999 um, through 2013, basically. And what I would, well, of course, you had other cases. So we had the Mahalovic case always uh, out there, obviously, has not been resolved yet. So you have all your daily other activities, other crimes, uh, whether they be, you know, burglaries or rapes. And we've had a couple homicides during that time. So all that goes on. But in the background, you always have the Mahalovic case. And it's a case that comes up um, uh, often daily, depending on what you're doing with the case. Uh, and if not daily, weekly. Um, so there was always something happening with the Mahalovic case during the, the, that time period. There were time periods during the investigation where we would um, do a major focus on, on some aspect of the case, whether it's revisiting the facts, whether it's, you know, we talked about DNA in the past, or whether it's... Uh, looking at a certain aspect of, of something and, and really drill down on it. And during those times, we'd spend days just doing that, doing nothing but the Mahalovic case for the whole day. And that's not only me, but that's the other detectives, that's uh, prior detectives, that's the FBI, and it's, you know, it's labs, it's everybody assisting. So the case has always been um, moving forward, uh, and it's sometimes heavily and other times just maybe weekly following up on a tip that comes in. More glacier-paced. Yeah. Now, did you guys have any leads down in Ashland County area? I mean, did were they, as far as the authorities go, mm-hmm. were they, did they work with you guys at all as far as, you know, tips when the when the body was found? And So we established a secondary kind of command post down there with the FBI and Ashland County Sheriff's Department. So we actually separated leads. So uh, leads were always coming in up here in Northeast Ohio. When the body was found down in Ashland, we set, we set up the secondary command post, and leads started coming into that. And there were a lot of leads that came into that, obviously, because that's where the body was found. Obviously, they were all still coordinated up here with our, our organization, but a lot of leads that came in down there were followed up by agents, sheriff's deputies, FBI agents who were working down there, as well as we had um, at least one officer from our department and local FBI working in assistance with that. So... 
it was always a coordinated effort uh, to do that. So you guys always had work together. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and and just regardless of what organization we we've worked with many many other law enforcement agencies on this case because they'll they'll provide us information or maybe we need their assistance with something. So now, when was it that you guys? <clears throat> now I know that we've talked about DNA in the past, and mm-hmm. we haven't gotten you know you're not obviously not going to get into specifics right. about what you have, but when was it that you realized that you had it? And now. In 1989, were you conscientious of that at that time? Because it hadn't been used in trial right, yet. Right, right, yeah. And DNA was was certainly in its infancy back in 89. It was nowhere near what it is today. But even back then, you know, everybody knew that blood evidence was important, you know, e- even then. Um, so you have a, a body that is recovered in a field that's um, decomposed, um, you understand that a lot of the forensic evidence has probably been um, deteriorated, uh, lost, you know, just from the period of time, the weather conditions and everything else. So, but you treat that body scene, recovery scene, as a crime scene and you try to collect everything you can. So they did that. They did their due diligence there as far as collecting any evidence. Just like as we sit here today, we have no idea what the technology is going to be 15 years from now. Right. So if we respond to a, a homicide now, there are things that we probably will do in 15 years from now, we'll look back and say, well, we should have maybe done that. Well, we didn't know. We don't know what that technology is gonna be, but we all know that the sensitivity of DNA is, is, is only gonna improve. You know, we have touch DNA now, where certain cells just from person walking into a room and touching something now leaves, leaves DNA. So you have to, in your mind, you have to say to yourself, we have to protect this scene to the best of our ability because we don't know what that's going to be. And I believe they did that back in 1989. Yeah, I mean, with the high-profile <laughs> case that it was, I would think that they kind yeah. of dotted their I's and crossed their T's in many different ways. Right. Uh, now, as far as when they went down to the scene the day that she was found, do you know how many officers and people were down in that area collecting evidence? And I don't, I don't know the exact numbers. I will tell you that... Um, by prior arrangement, if, if it was determined her body was ever recovered, that the Cuyahoga County Medical's officers, coroner's office at that time would do the autopsy. So that was predetermined. So when it was determined it was her body, um, her body was transported to the Cuyahoga County uh, coroner's office. Uh, the Ashland County Sheriff's Office was responsible for maintaining the, the crime scene down there, and they did a really nice job of that. It, it was maintained. Gosh, I can't give you an exact, at least a half mile radius around where her body was found. Um, they, they, because it was their jurisdiction, they had primary jurisdiction there, but obviously they knew it was our crime. So we assisted, the FBI assisted, the Ashland County uh, Coroner's Office, the County Coroner's Office, the Ashland County Sheriff's Department. All of them were involved in that search of the scene, recovery of the body, and, and subsequent investigation of that, that area. And, and that's when you found the curtain and the blanket that came out in 2016. Right, because we collected virtually everything around that crime scene, and those were found, you know, down the road as the, as, the, as the wind blows and as the water flows, it was found down the road. So those were collected at that time, along with other pieces that probably have no relevancy, but you don't know. Again, we look back and we say, well, I wish we would have done that. They collected everything that didn't, yeah, didn't so- naturally grow there. They collected it. Yeah, you said how many bags or boxes? There, there were hundreds of items just collected from that area. Wow. Yeah. 
And so, what were actually the uh, the dimen- Do you know the dimensions of the curtain? Uh, I, I do not off the top of my head. If I'm looking at it, I think it's probably about three and a half feet by about five feet. Okay. Yeah, and it's a homemade blank, or it's a homemade curtain made out of what looks to be like a bedspread. Yeah. Uh, very unusual. It's not something you'd buy in a store. It was handmade. Oh yeah. Somebody made this curtain, and I'm sure it has a match somewhere, or had a match somewhere. Which is why we put it out publicly. You know, it's such a unique item that hopefully somebody would recognize it. Now, we've not had that exact match. You know, it's never come across our plate yet, but we're still hoping for that. Now, as far as the blanket goes, same connection, though, with the, as far as the dog hairs? The, no, just on the curtain itself. The blanket didn't have any connection, but it was found no. in the same relative okay. area. Right. Really? Okay. So there's there hasn't been any true connection to that no just other than the same exact area vicinity yeah and you think about the fact that you know these were these could have been lying there for we don't know how long months and months right exposed to the elements well dna is sensitive it it, it is easily um destroyed so anything out in the elements has potential for being destroyed so one of the things we look for is um uh, is there a potential down the road with some new technology where we're not identifying DNA on this item currently, but in the future, will it be such a sensitive test that we can identify something we couldn't identify today? So that's why you keep all that stuff. That's why you reanalyze it, which is what we've been doing over the years. Every time there's a new new breakthrough, we're looking for another avenue to pursue as far as forensics and DNA. Yeah, it felt like, you know, the last, I mean, the first time that we talked, I think that cases were starting i think the golden state killer had just mm-hmm. been solved mm-hmm. or maybe that was our second time whatever I mean, we've talked a few times yeah but um it did feel like cases were being solved on the regular and i felt like amy's case might be one of those cases mm-hmm. i'm you know after a year of that i'm are you are we still waiting for the technology well we're if still that technology isn't what's going to solve this the case? technology of today isn't what's probably going to solve it for us we're going to We're still looking for the technology of tomorrow, but we know it's coming. We know that they're advancing rapidly. And the other thing is you got to be careful you don't destroy all your evidence, you know, pin all your hopes on one possible technology. Right. Because if you get rid of all your evidence, then what if you have, you know? And and so you got to be really careful on picking the right time, being very judicious in the use of your your technology because you want to, when you do it, you want to make sure it's right. So currently, the familial genealogy that's been used mm-hmm. to solve these other cases isn't something that could be used currently. Well, not not cur- in the future, possibly. Right. But where, where we stand now, no. Okay. You know, it's a very complicated. I don't want to get into all the details of it, but it's one of the questions that comes up a lot. Sure, because you know, it's like when techno, you know, when when you have this coded database, right? You got all these convicted uh, criminals with their DNA in a database. You would think, well, you have a crime scene. You just pull off DNA that is unknown to the victim and you plug it in the database, you solve the crime. Well, it's not always that simple, especially when you have a body that was lying in a field for an extended period of time, exposed to the elements, and a lot of the potential DNA probably got destroyed, uh, you know, or contaminated or whatever the case may be. So that complicates things. If you have a crime scene that happened yesterday, that's a whole different story. Um, and then again, over time, even, even if you collect it properly, we're talking 30 years that DNA has been sitting around, and even that deteriorates in the best of conditions. So, again, you, you got to be really careful. So when the body was found, 
Was it the Cuyahoga County coroner that actually removed the body then, or was it Ashland County? Ashland coroner? County removed Ashland County coroner's office removed the body. It was transported up by okay. private ambulance up to Cuyahoga County. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, that I always always wondered just yeah. because I know that um, Emory. I mean, the one autopsy report or coroner's report that I've seen. It, you know, it, as far as the cause of death goes, I mean, it looked like blunt force trauma and. Uh, you know, a couple stab wounds to the mm -hmm. neck, and then she bled out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it. I mean, is that what basically? The blunt force trauma. They they never really determined if that was fatal or not. Probably not. Okay. But, um, and, and you know, we don't know if it was, if the blunt force trauma was before she was stabbed, um, after she was stabbed. In other words, you could be stabbed and fall to the ground and hit your head. And if it's at the same time and your heart's still beating, you can't necessarily tell if that bruise or that, that trauma was caused by uh, before or after that event. So it's very, very close, paramorum, perimortem. So um, that's really not been determined. Definitely the stab wounds were, were the fatal part of that crime. And to create like a stab wound that would, I mean, basically they must have cut the carotid artery or... Right. And doesn't take a big knife to do that. No, uh, so it was a pretty devastating, there were a couple stab wounds to the neck and they were pretty devastating injuries. And Were they pretty, why, I mean, not to get Well, again, deterioration, uh, decomposition, you know, but uh, they were, it wouldn't have taken a large knife. We don't think it was a, a large, large knife or anything like that. It wouldn't have taken much to do the damage that, that occurred. Gotcha. Now, do you, in your opinion, in your years of research, years of, you know, yeah. on the job, mm -hmm. uh, experience do you think that her killing was met like more of a how do i put this was it imp like impulsive i mean does like the way that it right the wounds looked or like the um way that the you can tell i think the the wounds indicate it was a personal crime uh it indicates well, the crime itself, if we go back to the abduction and things like that, the individual who did this was very calculating and planning. Uh, you know, they, they, they really planned the event out. They groomed her, you know, and able to get her there. But I think what happens in these cases is they have a, a different vision of what a relationship's going to be like with a child than you and I would ever perceive it to be. And those never work out, of course. And, and so... We believe it was a sexually motivated crime, the kidnapping and the abduction and the eventual murder. So something happened, didn't go the way that he expected, and he had to kill her. And, you know, that's what we believe happened. Uh, and, and so there's a personal aspect to that, that type of crime. And that is a perfect segue to introduce this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. Having dealt with anxiety and depression for most of my life, I know a thing or two about the importance of mental health. So today I'm pleased to tell you about a great company. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. And now you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. With over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, BetterHelp is there for you. If you're not happy with any of your counselors, 
for any reason at any time, you can get a new one for no additional charge. They even have apps for your computer or smartphone. Whether you're suffering from depression, anger, stress, anxiety, LGBT matters, or self-esteem issues, they have a licensed professional counselor for you. And everything you share is confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Who Killed Amy Maholovic listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash WHO. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash WHO. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. That's interesting as far as, as far as the personal aspect of it goes, because if he just, I mean, he groomed her, but if, you know, if, if he didn't know her, mm-hmm. you know, how, how does... Yeah, he, I, obviously we know there was a call or calls made, Yeah. and uh, that process of grooming occurred, and we don't know over how many calls, we know at least one, probably more, but this is an individual that is, that excels at grooming kids. Because um, you think about Amy, who, you know, had a, a, a fairly protective mother. They had a password if anybody was going to pick her up. Uh, you know, um, she had to call home every day after she got home. These are indicators that they knew that there's dangers out in the world. And they're doing their, what they can to protect their daughter. Yet still, Amy, despite that, meets a stranger. We don't know what it was in her mind, but for us it was a stranger, and goes shopping. And so that's a that's quite a change from normal behavior so he had to have made her feel very comfortable to get in that car and leave with him yeah it really leaves a lot of question into how how he could have gotten that trust so Correct. quickly yep and it, and that's probably through grooming that he has had prior practice doing which indicates he's probably has other attempts or he has other crimes that he's committed where he's groomed young children. Um, so that's why we always look at past crimes, you know, to see if there's anything or, or crimes that occurred after the fact that match up with ours, uh, even re- remotely. This is probably an individual that started making phone calls. They could have been sexually motivated phone calls. It could have been voyeurism. There's all kinds of precursor criminal behavior that he could have been involved in. So these things are always looked at. When we get a tip or lead, we're always looking and doing background work to see what other activities they may have been involved with. Yeah, that's one of the cases, one of the MOs that I've like yet to see at least repeated mm-hmm. since then. I mean, I, I know technology at that time was changing pretty mm-hmm. rapidly as far as the phone went. And, you know, obviously things could move online and 
that's Correct. a whole other ball of wax. I did come across a story in Toronto, though, that happened three years prior to Amy's, mm-hmm. which was the uh, Allison Perrot case. Okay. And she was called at home, groomed, mm-hmm. told that he was going to conduct a... He was a reporter or a photographer and wanted to take her picture for the upcoming track event. Mm. But she was 11 and, right. you know, same exact end yeah. result. Yeah, and that's the type of behavior that these individuals during that time frame would have exhibited. And as you said, today, that'd probably be the Internet. They'd be using the Internet to contact and make those connections. And before the telephone and all that, it was, it was playgrounds, you know. And so as things evolve, their methods evolve. And, you know, there's a very good possibility that this individual who, who groomed Amy and made the phone call has moved, moved on to the Internet or something like that. That's very possible. Now, you were an officer in the, you know, you started in what, 80? 85. 85. Okay, so that was like the heart of Stranger Danger. Mm-hmm. And where did the whole Stranger Danger, like, let's teach all of our children because I mean it was like there was a time where it just like everybody freaked out and was like oh we got to protect our kids yeah. you know McGruff the dog and you know like all the PSAs yeah, and all that stuff. I don't know what the case or cases were that did that I, I really have never looked at that but certainly you know anybody who's ever been a parent your number one responsibility is keep your kids safe right you know uh, have them grow up to be to be safe and um, I think when you start hearing about these cases of course today's media you hear about everything and, you know, true or not, you hear about everything that goes on out there, and it makes you even more aware. So I think that was just beginning back in that time frame. Just more communication between... Just more avenues of communication and more stories being out there. You know, crime has always occurred. Right. It's always been around. It's just how it's presented to the public and how they find out about it has changed dramatically with social media and the instantaneous news and everything else. Yeah, it, I definitely feel like, you know, with the coverage, I mean, just in the 80s, being a kid that grew up in the 80s, I mean, it was like stranger danger was every day. It was, mm. you know, this, that, and the other. And, I mean, I know that there were cases like, you know, Adam Walsh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then you, you guys actually had John Walsh come up and do... Yeah, he did a... Um, a segment on yep. America's Most Wanted. Correct. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those. I mean, it has to drive you nuts. I mean, not to say what everybody is thinking, but yeah. you know, to it's, sit it's, here thirty years later. Well, it's a it's a there's a level of frustration because we feel like we've done everything that we could possibly do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we develop we we devoted resources from literally the minute she walked in the door and said her child was missing. An extraordinary amount of resources were developed. So it's not like you you look back and say, man, we just didn't do a very good job on this. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. We did things that were cutting edge at the time, let alone everything that you would normally expect. And we devoted a a ton of resources to it. We're a small department, 24 officers. Mm -hmm. But the fact is we had the, the assistance of the state and the federal government and every surrounding law enforcement agency helping us. So we had this force multiplier. So it really wasn't just because we were small, we didn't we didn't, couldn't do it. We had everybody assisting, so we had the resources, we had the the manpower, um, and and we utilized all of that. So the frustration comes in is you did everything you possibly can, yet it's still not resolved. That's where the frustration is. 
Yeah, and one of my one of the podcasts, <clears throat> excuse me, that inspired me to to do a story about Amy was was in the dark, and they covered the Jacob Wetterling case, and you know that happened like four days, five days prior to Amy's, and he was a young boy riding his bike, and and that was a case where the department dropped the ball, mm-hmm. and like you could t- you can they actually interviewed the the guy and looked in his car and. Moved on, and you know it was one of those things that like it came up, and it's not to say that like if Amy's killer is eventually caught, that his name won't be found in the database. Oh, it, it could very well because we have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of names, you know. So it's very possible that that could be the case. Sure. Yeah, and so that was a pure, you know, a case of they didn't do it right. Mm-hmm. So it does have to be agonizingly frustrating for you to be just knowing that you dotted your I's and crossed your T's and had the FBI here literally the next day. Yep, next day. Uh, and that is, that is it's just not only frustrating for current investigators, but past investigators who poured their heart and soul into solving this and, you know, went on and, and had to leave their service without doing that. And, it, 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 and there's been a few of those, and, and certainly that affects them as well. Uh, but there are people that are, will always come back, and I, I'm in contact with a lot of them. They'll always come back and help. If we said, hey, you know, you worked on a part of this, and, um, you know, it, it's come back up. Do you mind coming in? Well, they'd be here in a second. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, and that, <clears throat> it's a good segue into where things stand with Torsney and, you know, especially just Torsney and his right, involvement. So, so Phil Torsney has been working on it. He was, he was on the case back in 80, 89. Uh, he worked an aspect of the case, and of course, his his job was not the Amy Mahalovic case back then. But he worked on a good part of it, continued to work on it throughout his career, even up through retirement. Um, and he's come back and helped us, and and uh, he's been a tremendous asset. He's a he's a dog and investigator, great guy. Uh, he's some, definitely somebody you want on your team. So we've had the ability to to utilize his expertise and knowledge, and um, he's been a great asset for us. And and um, he'll continue to work. He'll continue to do what he can to help us. Now, as far as the grant money goes? Grant money has run out. Um, you know, the city has helped pay for some of his services as well, and, and we'll try to continue to do what we can. But, you know, there's no unlimited pot of money anywhere for anything. So we do what we can. Now, currently, do you have uh, – is there somebody down at the FBI still working the case? There's, a, there's an agent assigned okay. to the case. There has been for 30 years. Uh, that individual has changed over time, but there's always somebody assigned to assist us. So we have a point of contact at the Cleveland office. So when a case transfers from one agent to the mm-hmm. next, do they get like a refresher on the case? And do they like come in and talk to you and say, hey, this is, I'm the new guy? Yeah, I don't know what happens internally, but certainly we talk with them extensively. Okay. So they'll come out here and we'll talk about things. They'll get a lead. They'll come out and we'll talk about it. Um, so they get up to speed. I don't know what they do internally. I'm sure they do something, but I don't know what it is. But externally here, mm-hmm. uh, we, we certainly see them quite a bit and talk with them. Yeah, I was wondering what that kind of relationship was. With- it's a good relationship. And it's often, it's often agents we knew before. Okay. Uh, but as they get promoted or move on or get transferred, whatever it is, somebody new is assigned. And often when that new person is assigned, it's somebody we know, you know, in the Bay Village Police Department because we, we know the agents um, a lot of them anyway. And so we're already familiar with them. And generally, they're all familiar with the case, too, because they have 
if they get a tip that we need assistance, they, it's not just one person that helps. It's whoever in the office can help. Right. So the case is well known in the Cleveland office okay. uh, amongst the, 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 the team there. And so um, everybody's familiar with it. It's just that there is one person assigned as the point person to coordinate the activities and help with the investigation. Well, there you have it. Part one of my 30-year sit-down with the chief of Bay Village Police. I have part two of my interview with Chief Spetzel scheduled to drop sometime next week. Thank you again so much for listening. If you can follow me on Twitter, that'd be great. My username is at BillHuffman3. If you enjoy this independently produced podcast, you can help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the bottom left or right-hand side of whokilledamymahalovic.com, or you can always send donations via the Venmo app using my username at BillHuffman3 or via PayPal with my email. Any amount is appreciated, and it does help keep this podcast running and the show going. So if you enjoy this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It does help support the show, and it really does keep Amy's story in the spotlight. You can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234 if you have any new information. The FBI is offering a reward up to $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individuals or individual responsible for the death of Amy Renee Mahalovic. Anyone with information concerning this case, please call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next week, be safe. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, Delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, 
offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.